Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. This morning we're going to be in Romans 10, verses 1 through 10. Well, the last time we talked about the sovereignty of God, and that was, we took two sermons to get through chapter 9, because the sovereignty of God, a lot of people don't understand that doctrine. You know, God is all-powerful, God is autocratic, God has supremacy, he created all things, you know, how he interferes into human history, how he sets up prophecy, uh, his timetable for his return and remaking everything. You know, there's so many questions. How does he choose people? Who who does he decide is, you know, to be saved or not to be saved? But so we covered that in two two sections or two parts. However, the other part of it, and I kind of left off dot, dot, dot as I was talking, because the other part of this relationship between us and God is human responsibility. So this morning we're going to talk about, this is going to be the first part of two of human responsibility. Yes, God chooses but God knows the end from the beginning. He knows who's going to be saved, who's not. He knows who's going to choose him. Uh, so with human responsibility, there's a lot in the scripture about how we have a responsibility to seek after God. You know, the Lord sent his son to die for our sins so that we could have eternal life. Uh, and there's things that he implements for us to, to seek after him, to desire him, to put those voids in our heart. Even though we may be wealthy and be filling it with houses and cars and new this and new that, there's still going to be an emptiness when that starts to wear off. And there's a reason for that because God wants us. He wants a relationship with us. Okay, but some people resist that their whole lives and they have the ability, the free will to do that. So we're going to also take this into two Sunday sermons because it's 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 a big understanding. It's a big part of this. So you can't really talk about the sovereignty of God and how he chooses without human responsibility and how we choose. So hopefully after these four Sundays, we're going to have a better idea of the relationship between us and God and evangelism and things to that nature. So. It's a little bit of a shorter message today, so in keeping with our um, tradition in Romans 1, so in Romans 1, we talked about how, <laughs> it's a mantis, by the way, we talked in Romans 1, isn't he cute? He has a little smile. So we talked in Romans 1 about how God even shows us his divine, um, you know, the way he creates and his complexity and even simple things like uh, entomology or the study of insects. So we covered the bee, we covered the the dragonfly. Now we're on. We're going to eventually, we won't run out of bugs because there's so many of them. So today we're going to be talking about the mantis. And the mantis is very interesting because the mantis has very human-like qualities. Next time you're out in, in your garden and you see a little mantis, a little stick figure coming up towards you, they're kind of cool, I think. I've picked them up. I've looked at them and their heads can actually uh, turn 180 degrees on their necks like ours do. They see in stereo, stereo like we do. They can stand on two feet like we do, but they do have wings. And they have these, to me, they look like forearms, but they're called four legs, F-O-R-E. And the mantis has mastered the art of camouflage. Now, 
you've heard the word praying mantis. Praying is actually not the vernacular or the official term, but because the mantises have these pretty large and thick forearms and they kind of get into that position, they look like they're praying, so they're called the praying mantis. As a matter of fact, in the martial arts, they've modeled uh, a, a fighting style off of the, of the mantis. Okay, that being said, they've mastered the art of camouflage. They're pretty much green. Some of them are brown. Depends on if we're talking about the male or the female. They camouflage, and they can stay perfectly still. They've mastered the art of ambush. So when an insect comes, their, their arms or forelegs are extremely strong. They're able to grab them, catch them, grip them, and tear them limb from limb and eat them. So that's what they do. <laughs> Listen, it's the animal kingdom. A little fun fact, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this one because a lot of people talk about this, and it's actually true. The females, <laughs> you know where I'm going with this, <laughs> they're larger and stronger than the males. So sometimes after the females are done mating, they kill their male counterparts and they eat them. Just saying. Why they do that, I have no idea. You can ask God when he sees that. Uh, maybe they tease them too much or they're annoying and they just get rid of them and have a meal at the same time. And I know enough as a pastor at this point, I'm just going to move on to Romans 10. So <laughs> I could dig myself into a bigger hole here. But apparently everybody's awake this morning. Starting with verse 1, chapter 10. The Apostle Paul says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God but not according to knowledge, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. Folks, even in religion, what, why do we do what we do? You know, if somebody was to ask you candid questions about your faith and what you believe, you know, what kind of answers would you give to certain questions? You know, what is your primary goal? Wouldn't it be to please God? Wouldn't it be to have a relationship with God? to glorify, to worship God. That makes sense. That should be in the top, you know, 10. So we continue. He says, verse 4, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So we're only going to look at this in two parts. The first part is a misplaced religious zeal. Now, the context is Israel. The Apostle Paul is speaking about his brothers, his, his friends, his, you know, professional group, all these kind of things. Um, but it would be a shame if we missed the application today 2,000 year, uh, years later. Remember, there's a lot of things in religion, and you, you'd be amazed at Christianity. There's literally probably hundreds of splinter groups and cult groups and um, you know divisions and denominations. And like, how do we get to this place? How do we get to be so divided? Well, what unites us is reading what Jesus said. Jesus is God, fully God, fully man. And he came to say, hey, a lot of you in religion are doing, believe it or not, Matthew 23, he told the religious leaders, you're doing a lot of things that God doesn't like, that we don't like. And you got to change it because you're really not getting anywhere and you're not helping the people that you're raising up in your religious system. So it's very interesting. we got to look at the applications today in what some call Christianity or the Christian culture. But let's look at the caveat here is that the majority of the faith was Jewish. Jesus came from the line of, of the Jewish people, right? He, God perfectly, purposely put him in that line. So Christ was Jewish. Does it mean God's Jewish? No. It just means that when 
Christ became fully man. He came into that line, and there was a reason for that. Uh, the apostles were Jewish. The early church was Jewish. A lot of people don't know that because we see what happens today. The early church was so Jewish that in Acts 15, the largely Jewish church, Christianity, had a dilemma. There's Gentiles that want to become like us too. How do we let them into the fold? So I could get a hoot hoot from some of my Jewish believers here this morning. Okay, I see a few of you. Uh, but, but the bottom line is, in Acts 15, they were befuddled. They didn't, they had to make, they had to, pray and seek after God and say, all these Gentiles want to become Christians. How do we get them into the fold? So context is very important. However, much of the leadership resisted the Messiah because they were entrenched in their power structure and and people have complaints about religion today. And I would agree with many of those complaints. Once they get into the power structure, they start to lose the purity and start to run the church like a corporation. That becomes very problematic. However, the Apostle Paul, right? The Apostle Paul was a rabbi. And he was part of the leadership. He studied under Gamaliel, which you can find him in secular history. Uh, Nicodemus was a you know, entrenched religious person who came to Jesus at night. He was a leader, but he, he was seeking after the things of God because he didn't have all the answers. In Acts chapter 6, verse 7, there was a whole bunch of priests that left the priesthood at the time in the old, you know, from the Old Testament transition to the New, that they became believers in Jesus. So I, I've, I'm very careful and, and I'm very concerned when people paint with a broad brush. I mean, Paul's not doing that, but he's trying to make a point here because he loves the people. He, he loved his uh, associates and his contemporaries, and he wanted them to be saved too. So you can see his heart there. Verse 2, he speaks about this misdirected zeal. It's not according to knowledge. Now again, and I hear the accusations, and it's funny, I don't get defensive when people come to me. They don't know anything about God. And they have these canned lines that I think there's a school somewhere where unbelievers go and they don't want to have God pierce their heart. And they say, tell them this, tell them that. And you hear the accusation about organized religion. Well, if you think we're really organized, you should see us during the week. We look more like the Three Stooges. (laughs) We actually play a lot of videos and that helps us through the day. Uh, But I'm just kidding. Well, no, I'm really not. <laughs> but <laughs> so, organized religion. Um, how about the other thing? Uh, you know, more has been more bloodshed because of religion. Some of that's true, actually. I would agree with that. You know, you look at jihad, uh, which well, they're demented, but they're they're well-meaning where they have a zeal. And they think that blowing themselves up in the marketplace and taking out a bunch of infidels is going to make God happy. But they find out as soon as they step into eternity, that was a bad decision. It's this zeal that has no knowledge. It is nowhere in the scripture where God would be pleased with blowing people up. Well, let's talk about even some that have represented Christianity over the years. The the Inquisitions, let's forcibly convert the Jewish people. You wonder why Jewish people are a little hesitant about Christianity. They're very cautious and suspicious because they see some of the powerful church history in Europe. And it frightens them. Again, forcible conversion of Jewish people, is that that something that God would want? That's also zeal, it's zealousness, but again, it's not according to knowledge. So if we're going to be zealous, the zeal, like I have a zeal to preach this message, but it's got to be according to knowledge. I can't make up my own stuff. I can't make up my own rules. You know, it defeats the purpose of, of leading people to a faith. 
so we, we, we need to seek after God. Jesus even said to his followers, and, and again, in Christianity, you see is today, uh, repeating prayers, memorize prayers over and over and over and over, depending on how many sins you committed. Well, Jesus said specifically in the Gospels, don't repeat your prayers. Don't, don't you know, have these rote rituals that you say them over and over again. It's like a mantra. You know what Jesus said to his followers? The heathen do that. So why in Christianity is it done today? Because there is a zeal without knowledge. Zeal has to be married to knowledge. So really good point here that the Apostle Paul makes. Verse 3, here's another problem when we move away from God's ideals. He says that, tells us that it's a dangerous place when religious people pursue their own righteousness. And this, is, this can happen in two ways. And again, all these different lines, these one-liners that have probably been around for a thousand years. You know, I'm a good person. I never killed anybody. So a, a righteousness, well, therefore I'm righteous, therefore God has to accept me. And you see the logic that flows over it. So number one, the problem can be in ignorance. And you hope that a person who is ignorant of the things of God actually seeks after God. They want it to be according to knowledge, not according to ignorance. The other one is where he speaks about them, you know, and again, in, in some entrenched religious systems, well, and you, you ask the question, well, why do you do this? Well, it's because we always did it. But what does God think about what we always did. Can we change that based on what the scripture says? So the second part of that is that they refuse to submit to God's righteousness. Listen, we're told in the Old Testament, Isaiah 64, that our righteousness, that if we think we're going to get to heaven by our works, he says is like filthy rags. That was a pretty strong statement back then. In the New Testament, it's the same thing. We don't get to heaven by any perceived righteousness. It doesn't work that way. It has to be according to what Christ did on the cross. That's clear. Verse 4, to the true believer, Christ frees us from the law's condemnation. This is a, sometimes it's hard to explain some of these doctrinal things, but, you know, the law can only condemn us. It's like if you're speeding down the road and you're doing 100 miles an hour in a 25 mile an hour zone and you see the lights go off behind you and the officer pulls you over, and uh, he's going to write you a ticket. You say, no, 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 no. Wait a minute. Can you teach me how to drive better? Cop's going to look at you like, I'll be right with you. And they hand you your ticket. Here's a court date. The law is almost like the policeman, where the policeman's job isn't to teach you how to drive better or to follow the law better. The, sadly enough, the policeman's job is just to enforce the law. So when you look at the law of God, do not kill, do not steal, we, we're not told how to do these things because we can't. Jesus told us in the New Testament that even if you think these things, you know, the Apostle Paul was a Pharisee. He kept an outward piety. You know, he didn't commit adultery. He didn't steal. He didn't kill. He was a religious man. However, Paul understood as he started growing in his faith that, you know what, my thoughts are condemning me. Jesus said that in Matthew 5. Jesus said that in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, if you, you know, look, if you're not, you're not committing outward adultery, you've been physically faithful to your wife or your husband, but if you've thought about these things, your thoughts condemn you. If you, you haven't ever punched somebody, but someone ticked you off so bad, you know, on Route 9 or something, that you, you think about running them off the road and killing them. 
Well, hopefully not bad, but Jesus said that your thoughts condemn you. So, folks, we get to the point where, well, Pastor Joe, this is hopeless. No, it's not hopeless because the law was designed to show us our deficit, that we're not righteous, that we can't keep God's law. However, Jesus came to impute his righteousness to us because he kept the law perfectly. When he died on the cross, he died for our sins. And if you believe in that sacrifice that he made, his righteousness is imputed to you because he took your bad behavior and your sins and he nailed it to the cross. So it's very, it's very technical, it's theological, it's doctrinal, but actually it's pretty simple. Just believe in Christ and what he did for you. Somebody could come to Christ with no education. It doesn't matter. Uh, and they're just as saved as the person who has a doctorate. That's the beauty of the cross because it's the same standard for everyone. I love that about God's word. So verse 4 For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. If you don't believe and you refuse Christ's sacrifice, when you die, you're going to be judged according to the law and your righteousness is not going to hold up. So many reasons to believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. So the question is, are we still, and in any church, we have a very transitional church. People come to visit, people come to seek. Jamesburg is a very you know, hustle and bustle place. People just check it out. They come, they go. Um, some people come with their relatives. Some people come whatever. But my question to you this morning is, are you following dead religionism? Oh, what are you trying to say, Pastor Joe? Are you being self-serving? i got to be a Calvary person? No, <laughs> absolutely not. You have to be a Jesus person. This is just a venue for you to hear the word of God. We don't, you don't have to, you're not adhering to us. You're giving your heart and your life to Jesus Christ, and we're going to talk about that. That's the beauty of it. We're, we're just here to show the way, and then it's you and him. You know, it's you and him, that marriage, so to speak, bond between you and your Lord. And are we concerned about this? Are we concerned about the unsaved? You know, this ties into, this ties into some current events. Did you know, and, and some will read this and they'll go, ah, you Christians, and I hear this, I'll watch it on, I yell at the TV sometimes, so I don't watch TV that much, or I hear these ignorant statements in the media about Christianity, and, you know, and I've heard people say, without doing the research, they'll, oh, oh, you Christians, so Paul's saying, your Christian guy there is saying that Jewish people need to believe in Jesus. Um, yes. So how can you tell another faith, well, let's back up for a second, who was Paul? Paul was from the tribe of Benjamin. He boasts about his resume. I'm an Israelite of the Israelites. I'm a rabbi. I'm a religious teacher. He, he finds out about Jesus on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. He's so excited about his newfound faith that he wants everyone to be saved. And that's what we do. Paul's zeal was according to knowledge. But did you know that, and I'm, I follow a lot of uh, you know, news and current events, whether you're talking about the Western world, whether it's England, Germany, Canada, do you know that, that the Bible is considered hate speech in some districts? Hate speech. So you read the Bible. You know why the Bible's considered hate speech? Because today nobody can think for themselves. And people are very easily triggered and offended. But this is the truth. God is sharing the truth with us. And you know what? The truth sometimes is going to offend us. 
It offends me sometimes. I'll just be honest with you. I've been pastoring to, for 15 years, and I'm like, oh, i got to change that too about myself. Uh, you know, i got to check my attitude sometimes. And it's like, the Bible's offensive. But it's the truth. It's the way. It shows us a, a mirror to ourselves and, and the deficit and how to fix that deficit. So what's, what's right and what's wrong? You know, what's truly love? Love tells the truth. Now, I just feel like I needed to, you know, I know a lot of people are weighing in on this and just for our culture and the things that are going on. And I kind of want to broaden the conversation and not just talk about shootings. I want to talk about more than that. In our culture, for decades, our culture has been driving God out of public discourse, sometimes private discourse, sometimes telling churches what they can say and what they consider hate speech. And, you know, I've been saying the same thing. There's a spiritual root to why our culture looks the way it looks. Passing a law is just a flippant, you know, the news cycle moves so quickly, just pass a law. It doesn't work. I was actually watched the uh, interview with Alveda King, the niece of Dr. Martin Luther King, and she was saying the same thing I said, because we're, we all read from the same playbook. I posted her, um, her discussion to my uh, Facebook wall. But you can look at the Old Testament. We went through 66 chapters of Isaiah in the Old Testament. What did the the prophets in the Old Testament say? They warned the Israelites that when you start going away from God, these terrible things, it's going to be a spiritual power vacuum, are going to end up in our country. And a lot of those things did happen. So we see it literally happening in the Old Testament. We see it happening in our culture. I mean, let's look at these, these issues. You know, the elephant in the, in the room is these shootings that people are so desperately, and they should be, looking for a solution. It has a spiritual root to it. But are we just concerned because there's, you know, the media likes to pick and choose what they show? You know, uh, there's something that's sensational. What about, and I did some research, and this is sad, poor people living in Chicago. 2016, 770 murders. That is, if you do the math, that's two point, some, two point like three Chicagoans every single day are being murdered. Do we care about that? 770 in 2016. The shootings were 400. Now, add Baltimore, add a lot of other places, and we're losing thousands of Americans every day to violence. And these places have very strict gun control. So how are these things happening? It's a spiritual route. What about, we have a very morbid culture. I mean, the cat's out of the bag. There's a lot of ex-abortion doctors who are in tears talking about what they did the thousands and they just talk about the just taking the body parts out in the womb putting them on a table and then making sure they count all the parts to make sure there's nothing left in the womb that's morbid how do you do that how do we get to a place where these things are happening in american culture life is becoming very cheap and very worthless and i talk to you especially young people not to frighten you but for you to see that this is a sinking ship and I'm not depressed about it. I, I, after church, I'll joke with you. I'll have a good time. I, I enjoy my life. It's just a reality. But the truth is God's kingdom is coming. And that's where we have to put all our, you know, eggs in one basket, so to speak. We'll continue. You know, politicians, uh, journalists, they're, they're disingenuous. They look for a, a quick solution. 
because next week we're going to talk about something else. And then the week after we have something else on our agenda. So they look for quick, cheap ways to get through, throw a parcel on, make, make everybody feel good and move on. How are so many young men, young men from different... Here's another thing. Folks, <laughs> don't, don't have a loyalty to a political party. I don't care if you're a liberal or a conservative. Because your loyalty needs to be to Jesus Christ first. Amen? The cool thing about this church is I know many of you well. Some of you lean left. Some of you lean right. And you know what? Some, sometimes you argue about stuff, but you're still family. You come together in this church. Wouldn't that be great if everybody could do that? Do you see where, what Jesus was saying about being salt and light? He wanted the church to get along and to love each other, regardless of their diversity of opinions, ethnicities, or whatever. And that's the beautiful thing when a church does that. And then they export it to the world. That's what salt and light is all about. But let's continue. I think that I grew up dating myself. I grew up in the, in the 70s and 80s, and I think the only thing we had was that Atari uh, tennis. You could only do that so long before you lost your mind. Uh, now we have, I had a flip phone for years, and everybody in the church was telling me, you've got to get one of these iPhones. I resisted it. I think Pastor Stan, you still have a flip phone. So, uh, so I mean, I, you know, his culture was even, he's older than me. Um, I, I've never seen it like this. People have replaced God and their family with technology. My wife and I went out to dinner, and we, when we go out to dinner, we talk. We like to talk. We enjoy each other's company. And it was just so obvious because we almost like we think alike after being married for 22 years. We both looked over and we looked at each other. At the table next to us, there was a father, a, a mother, and two kids. And they all had their own personal devices. And nary a word was spoken between among the four of them. And they played with their thing. They talked just enough to tell the waiter what they wanted. They went back to their devices and they left. Are you talking to your kids? We got a lot of kids that are just wayward, especially young men. They're looking for a purpose and they're, they're getting themselves into trouble. You know, there's dark recesses of the web that you can go into as an echo chamber and talk to like-minded people, you know, and, and, they, and they do these things. Um, I think about the overprescription of psych drugs. These are all factors, folks. This is why there won't be a national discussion. Because the liberals will say, well, we think this. And conservatives will say, well, we think this. Wouldn't it be great? Because they're both right in a lot of ways if we could come together. If there was a symposium, I'd go. I'd go to Trenton to a liberal governor. And I'd go to uh, D.C. to a conservative president. I would do it. I'm a nobody, so they're not going to ask me. But We've got to start broadening this, the discussion, just focusing on one thing. This is multifaceted. It took us decades to get to this place, and it's going to take us a while to get out of it. One law or two laws being passed is not going to do the trick. Um, I know pastors in Calvary chapels that are completely against any psych drugs. I'm not that way because I did studies on neurobiology. I understand you know, how the brain works and stuff and the whole brain chemistry thing. However... I've seen teenagers and young adults that have been walking around for months like zombies. They can't stay awake. They, they don't feel emotion because their doctors are treating them like lab rats. And folks, if a doctor is doing that to your kid, get a second opinion because that is a contributing factor. You ever watch these commercials? 
You know, they, they, everyone's happy and the sun's out and with these, some of these drug commercials. At the end, what happens? It's, it's ending and somebody is saying, uh, make a suicide tendencies, aggression, da, 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 and they, they say it really fast and you don't even hear it because they have to say it legally, but they say it really quick. So that's a contributing factor. There's a lot going on here. And let me add this as well. Christians, Jesus has called us to be salt and light. There's a lot of lazy Christians out there. In every church, there are Christians that are just so preoccupied and self-absorbed with their schedules, their retirement, their summer schedules, that they're not part of the solution. There's an expression that says, if you're not part of the solution, you're a part of the problem. Jesus didn't suggest that we be salt and light. He didn't say, if you feel like it. He didn't say in October when the summer is over. He said, we need to be salt and light. Jesus said that society will naturally be a decadent place. It'll, it'll start to rot like a piece of meat. And what salt does is it holds back the bacteria from completely taking over and destroying. Christians are supposed to be salt and light. I, don't, I disagree with her on some spiritual issues, but I actually read an article this morning that shocked me. Oprah Winfrey. She said, there's a spiritual root to this. I almost fell off my chair because she's into some new age stuff and all that. But she's right. You know, Alveda King, um, people are starting to say it. There's a spiritual root to this problem. It isn't going to be fixed by humanistic messages, humanistic psychology, mumbo jumbo. It is a spiritual root to this. Christians, even if you're a new believer or you're intimidated by talking to folks, can you pray? You see somebody that's wandering around and you see that same person in the neighborhood, do you ever stop and I pray for that kid? You know, fatherlessness, huge in our culture. That is a contributing factor. You know, there's a lot of factors. It isn't one thing. It isn't a one size fits all. Can we pray? Can we get to know people? Can that, that person that is being that in that uh, web-based echo chamber that they're only hearing whether they're anarchists or Antifa or white supremacists or Nazis, it doesn't matter. Because, and this is what people do, the lefties will look at the El Paso guy and say, oh, see, he's a right-leaner. The righties will look at the Dayton shooter and go, he's a left-leaner. All right, what are we solving by arguing with each other over politics? Don't we realize that sin and evil comes in all shapes and sizes? We need, to fo- we need to focus on the solution. And we need to be a part of the discussion, folks. We need to get out there. We need to interact with people. We need to love people. And you know what? When you do that, sometimes you get bit. I have the scars to prove it. I've actually be- been physically bit uh, as well. But I'm talking about spiritual situations. So, you know, as Christians, we need to, we need to do our job. And it doesn't mean that it's for us to save the world, but Jesus put us out there for a reason to, to, um, I've talked to, I've talked to people that leaned, um, jihadist and some of them have changed. I've talked to people that were anarchists. You can throw me into a group of, I actually, I enjoy it. I love just trying to change people's thoughts and their minds you know, to debate them, to offer an alternative. I enjoy doing that, to get into the discourse and the conversation. I just think we need to do more of that. Amen? Verse 5. So we started with the word, and we ended with the word, because our culture is pushing away the word. How silly it is that the ACLU sues the government and 
some judge says, yeah, you're right. The engravings from a hundred years ago in that marble in the courtroom that says, do not murder, do not steal. It's offensive. Covered over, covered over with plaster and painted. These things are going on in our country. It's weird. It's like, so if God is a, is a fantasy, if he doesn't really exist, is there a campaign to destroy the Easter bunny or, or Santa Claus? I hope I didn't ruin anybody's morning, but there isn't. The truth is there's power in Christ and there are forces that don't want to hear it and they want to shut it up. They want, if it wasn't real, there wouldn't be this so much animosity against it. So verse five, we continue for Moses writes about the righteousness of the law. And he's quoting Leviticus 18. The man who does those things shall live by them. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down from above. Or who will it descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near to you, even in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith, which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes to righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made to salvation. So two out of two is the righteousness of the law versus the righteousness of faith. And again, Rabbi Paul, the Apostle Paul, is speaking about Israel. However, 2,000 years later, we can definitely make applications to what we see on a regular basis. Verse 5 from Leviticus 18, Moses told the people they had to keep the law. They had to keep the law. And time after time after time, they failed. And God had to deal with those situations. Just like as a, a, a Christian, you know, sometimes we think, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to force myself or will myself to keep God's commandments, and we fail. If we don't do it physically, we do it inside of our thought life. So what's the answer? The answer is Christ. He came in to usher true righteousness. You know, you can almost look at the Moses model versus the Abrahamic model in the sense that the Moses model, Moses, you know, when Moses brought down the Ten Commandments, when Moses was obedient to God, even Moses messed up. Moses, when it was not allowed into the promised land, because he misrepresented God. Moses was a great guy, but he, he failed as we do. So the obviousness of failure spiritually is everywhere. But some have taken the Moses model and, and going, they're going backwards and saying, we're going to keep the law. Well, Moses couldn't even keep the law. So how are you going to keep the law? The Abrahamic model is very different. Abraham... Romans 4 tells us was justified by faith. That's the beautiful thing about Abraham. Before the law, before circumcision, before uh, the dietary restrictions, before any of that stuff, because that came later, Abraham, the Bible says in Genesis and in Romans, he believed God and it was imputed to him for righteousness. Abraham believed. Abraham knew eventually God was going to send the Messiah. Abraham knew that God was eventually going to relieve him of the burden of his sins. So I submit to you that the Abrahamic model is the one that we should be following, whether we're talking about Genesis or we're talking about Romans chapter 4, which we covered. So the Abrahamic model. In John 8, 56, Jesus said, as he was talking to some of the religious leaders, that Abraham... Jesus said, rejoice to see my day. What do you think that means? Well, Abraham, as we're told in the scripture, 
He died, right? He was a good man. He went to uh, a place of, of holding. And those saints had to wait until the Messiah came to die for their sins before they could be released to be in now constant physical face-to-face uh, interaction with the Lord himself. So Abraham follows the prophets. He follows Genesis through Malachi in the Old Testament. He sees the pointing to the Messiah. And Jesus said, he rejoiced to see my day. Because Abraham knew, oh, here it comes. Oh, yeah, this is going to be good. I'm, and I'm going to go to be with the Lord. The religious leaders looked at him like they were befuddled. What are you talking about? You're, you're not even 40 years old. How, do you, how, do you, how could you see that? How could you interact with him? But it was spirituality transverses. It's anachronistic or diachronistic. It's across time. Verses 6 through 7, God provided for us, and all the Old Testament prophets pointed to it, in the, the one day, the ability of the Messiah to take away the sins of the people which is very exciting. What he's saying in verses six through seven, as you know, going up or going down, um, you don't have to get drastic. You don't have to bring Christ down from heaven or bring him up from the abyss to sacrifice again. The book of Hebrews tells us that Christ's sacrifice was once and for all. Now, again, let's go back to uh, Christian religions and denominations where they make sacrifices for the people. How could you do that? First of all, the priesthood was an Old Testament order, and there's no temple, and the priests served in the temple. But today, in, in many churches, they think that, you know, Jesus is going to come back in the, in the wafer or the blood, and it's just not scriptural. Hebrews said he died, Jesus died once and for all. It's an eternal sacrifice that he made for the people. Verse 8. What does the righteousness of faith say? Verses 6 and 8, that the word is near to us. That salvation is within our reach. It's easily accessible. It's in our mouth and it's in our heart and it doesn't get much closer. And what that means is it doesn't mean that we can save ourselves. But God gave us the ability, think about this. Uh, Lebed, I think in the Hebrew, was, was heart. But we're not talking about the four-chamber cardiac muscle that sits behind our sternum. He's speaking about the heart, and, and the Hebrew language was very poetic and beautiful. The heart was understood as our essence. It was our, our intellect, our will, and our emotions. With those things, we can either choose God and go after him, or we can choose to reject him. So God is saying, I gave you the ability to, to just say it with your heart. To, you know, to say with your mouth and to believe it in your heart that these things are true, right? When we, when we do an altar call, when somebody comes up, they don't even know what they're coming up to. They just want Jesus. We lead them in a prayer and we say that if you believe what you're saying, as you're listening to your words, as you're repeating it, and it's a reflection of who you are inside, God hears, you know, and God wants to be involved in your life. You're, you're calling out to him. Luke 6.45, Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And in, in our regular conversations, whether we're in church or out on the street, you know, what we say in our multitude of words is a reflection of who we are inside. If we're always talking about ourselves, then we're pretty much self-centered, right? If we're always talking negatively about other people, we might have some anger issues or, or issues with other people and maybe we're not very nice inside and maybe we need to ask the Lord to work on that. But if you call on God, he hears you and that's a reflection of your heart. 
So my question to you is, could God have made it any easier for us to get saved? I know. If you're, if you're new to the church and you're new to the Bible, some of this can be, wow, well, you said a lot of things. You know, righteousness and sacrifices, Old Testament, New Testament. Listen to it again. Go back to the scripture. See if what I'm telling you is true. Do your own research. It's all there in the word. I'm just pulling it out for you. But here's the most important part. Because I like the ins and the outs. I like the nuts and bolts, so to speak. I like the retooling. You know, it's fun stuff. But at the end of the day, anybody, anywhere, you don't even have to be in a church. You could be outside. You could be in your, in your room, in your house by yourself and call out to God. And he's there to hear you. That's the beautiful thing about how easy he made it. So why isn't everybody saved? Well, one of the reasons is pride. Pride. Self-effort. Sometimes religion. Remember what I talked about? Don't be loyal to, you know, Republicans or Democrats. Be loyal more to Jesus than your religion, than your denomination, than your culture that you grew up in. Give Jesus your all. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, he has a big umbrella. He's going to put a lot of people in that tent. You know, it's, it's pretty neat stuff. Surrendering. Maybe the what ifs. Why do people not get saved? Why do they keep delaying God? What ifs? Well, how's, how's my parents going to feel about this? How are my kids? How are my loved ones? You know, what if they know at work that I'm a Jesus freak now? You don't have to be a Jesus freak. Just love the Lord. But I say this, that when you see children play and you see kids interact with each other and they're really little and you just put another kid in the room, they could be black and white, they could be disabled, they could be... Um, it, Kids just play with each other. It's that innocence. Jesus spoke about that innocence. And he told his adult followers that you're not even going to see the kingdom of heaven unless you become like these kids spiritually. What happens to us as we become adults? Trials, hurts. And we start to, especially in this area, we start to develop a callousness over our heart. And some of that callousness translates to keeping God at his distance too. Well, what if God hurts me? You know, people have hurt me my whole life. Why should I give him a chance? He didn't help me when this happened. Like all these thoughts come around. And then we go on with our lives. And some of us lead productive lives, but we're hard. And we might not even admit it. I can't help to think about this guy, Jeffrey Epstein, who in his 50s and 60s started trafficking young girls. How did he get like that? How did that start? It started with a hardness of heart. It it started with him pushing God away. And I'm not saying everyone's going to end up like that, but we end up later on in life looking back at life and we have a lot of questions even about ourselves. You know what I'm saying? The human condition is a sad condition. But God came to reverse that. So I I want to encourage you this morning. There's a lot here. If you don't know the way of salvation, it's right in front of you this morning. God gave you the ability to believe, to trust, and to speak it with your mouth. There's power in that. He gave everyone, you've heard the expression, it's right at your fingertips. It's right at your lips. He gave you that ability. We spoke of the sovereignty of God. Today we speak of human responsibility. We, you, are responsible for the spiritual things you hear. And I know on any given Sunday that some will come into this church and they just can't wait for it to be over. They sat down and they wondered what they walked into 
and the, the, the preaching and the hearing of the word offends them deep into their core. If it wasn't true, why would you be offended? I'm not offended by fairy tale stories. It's a spiritual thing. But let me just provide you with an alternative that you consider the things of God. Consider why you're here this morning. Consider why you heard this message. Nobody can make you. But if you get it, even if you're, you're wrestling with it, consider it and respond to it. You have the power because God gave it to you. Let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfield. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you.